Great to be back here again. It's almost a year, I think, since uh, the last time. I had a, a really profitable visit with Tim at the end of August when he came to pick up his, uh, his son from uh, Toronto, and we sort of talked for about an hour, I think, or an hour and a half before I let him get back to work and found out a little bit about uh, what was going on up here at uh, Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. One thing I did notice coming in today was uh, how much building has uh, has gone on and is going on in King City. It's going to be King City by the time they're done, by the looks of it. And uh, that's going to be quite a mission field when all of that's accomplished. The last time I was here, I spoke on Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12. And you were very, very patient and understanding and listened as I tried to make some sense of that for you. I'm not going to do anything as ambitious as that this afternoon, uh, but I do want to speak to you about something that you may or may not have heard before. Um, Probably for most of you, it's something you have not heard of before, and that's the aseity of God. By the time I'm done this afternoon, I hope that you know what aseity means and that you will see the relevance of this particular attribute of God uh, to your own lives. The place that I want to begin is by reading the scriptures, and so if you have uh, a Bible with you, please turn to Acts chapter 17. There are a number of passages that speak about God's aseity. Uh, One of them has already been read for us today, that is Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Uh, But uh, this is another passage that speaks of God's aseity, Acts 17, beginning at verse 16, and going through to the end of the chapter, which is verse 34. Uh, It is the speech that Paul gave before the Areopagus in Athens, and really the text uh, kind of unfolds the story Uh, for us, we're particularly interested in the way that Paul starts his sermon when he begins to speak to the people on that occasion, uh, because it's in the beginning of his sermon that he speaks about God's aseity, although the word is not mentioned. So Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They would have had fun with Twitter and Facebook, wouldn't they? Uh, It was just, you know, made for people like the Athenians. Paul then stood up in a meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now here's uh, the section that I particularly want you to notice. Notice where Paul starts. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Well, as I have already mentioned, I want to talk today about God, and in particular, I want to talk to you about a particular attribute of God known as the aseity of God. In order to do that, I have to engage in a little bit of systematic theology. And I'm quite happy to do that because I teach systematic theology at, at uh, Toronto Baptist Seminary. It's been a, a long-time love of mine when I was a pastor and even before that. And uh, I never thought when I was in pastoral ministry that I'd ever have the opportunity of actually teaching systematic theology in a seminary setting. Between the time that I was in seminary and today, there have been changes in the theological world, and there has been a growing recognition of the importance of something called biblical theology. You might be thinking, well, what's the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology? Uh, Isn't one the same as the other? Uh, In a sense, yes, but in another important sense, no. Biblical theology, technically speaking, uh, from an evangelical standpoint, involves tracing the plan of redemption through the Bible from the book of Genesis to Malachi and the Hebrew Scriptures, and then from the book of Matthew in the New Testament uh, to the book of, of Revelation. And the job of the biblical theologian is to appreciate the distinctive emphasis of all of the different biblical writers as they are a part of God's progressive unfolding of his truth, and particularly his plan of salvation, which culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. Biblical theology has has aided our study of the Bible tremendously because it's made us aware of the fact 
that you cannot treat the Bible uh, as a ahistorical and uh, a, a kind of flat historical book. You, you can't just go to the Bible and and uh, pull texts out of the Bible uh, at random without an appreciation of of their context. If you do that, you will uh, sooner or later distort that text and misrepresent the message of the Bible. You can prove anything from the Bible if you just pull texts here and there without any appreciation uh, for their biblical context. And biblical theology has made us very aware of the fact that when we quote from the Bible, we have to understand where we are quoting from in the Bible. Are we, are we quoting a text uh, before the fall, for instance? Are we quoting a text after the fall? Are we quoting a text from the law or the prophets, from the Old Testament, from the Gospels, from the epistles? Uh, all of those uh, locations in Scripture are important when it comes to understanding uh, what is going on. Biblical theology has, has captured the minds of so many people today uh, that uh, they have become quite skilled, particularly preachers have become quite skilled in uh, taking us from uh, any portion of Scripture and bringing us legitimately to Jesus Christ. And that is, of course, very, very important. We need to teach people. We need to understand how we can go from the law of Moses, how we can go from the prophets, how we can go from the gospels, the epistles, from an apocalyptic book like Daniel in the Old Testament or Revelation in the New Testament, how we can legitimately get to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. This is, of course, uh, very important. However, human beings are, are creatures given to excess. And uh, sometimes when we, when we uh, you know, get our hands on something that's important and precious and it's meaningful to us, we become so enamored with it that uh, we, can, well, we can get out of balance when it comes to other equally important areas. And a little bit of that has happened with biblical theology. So that uh, typically today you'll, uh, you'll hear preachers, sometimes young pe- preachers who are very well trained at seminary, and, and they will get you to Jesus. They will get you to Jesus from anywhere in the Bible, and they will, they will uh, passionately and properly proclaim the, the gospel message. And that's good as far as it goes. Uh, but it is really not going far enough because not only do we have to get to Jesus, we then have to show how Jesus affects the rest of our lives, how he shapes and molds our lives, how uh, his gospel and the salvation that we experience in Jesus Christ changes everything, changes the way we think, changes our whole worldview. And this matter of a biblical worldview that is centered in God and what he has done in Jesus Christ moves us from the realm of biblical theology to the realm of systematic theology. Systematic theology is different from biblical theology in that it's an attempt to systematize everything that the Bible says about any given topic, to organize it, and to present it in a way that that is understandable and that is practical and that will uh, instruct us as to how we should live to the glory of God. Systematic theology and biblical theology are not enemies of one another, they are friends. And the systematic theologian is thankful for the insights of the biblical theologian and builds upon them. He takes what, what uh, God has revealed in the scriptures, and then he asks a further question, okay, uh, you know, how does this apply to my life? 
What does the Bible say about God, about man, about uh, salvation, about the past, the present, the future? What does the Bible say about politics? What does it say about the environment? You can ask the Bible any question you want. Now, the Bible doesn't answer all questions as fully and clearly as it answers some questions. That is, the Bible has much more to say about God and, and uh, man and sin and salvation than it does about the, uh, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs and the NHL players' strike or about the uh, election in the United States, even though some people in the United States like to think that the Bible has lots to say about that election and so forth and so on. But you understand what I mean, that, that uh, systematic theology can go to the Bible and ask it anything. You know, well, what does the Bible teach about marriage? What does it teach about raising a family? What does it teach about eating chocolate or, or drinking coffee? Any question is fair game. And then you have to go to the Scripture and say, okay, what does it say? Sometimes it says a lot, sometimes it says little, and sometimes it might not say anything at all, at least not directly. But uh, that's, uh, that's the, 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 the role of uh, systematic theology. Now, today, what I'm basically doing is I'm coming to the Scripture, and I'm saying, what does the Bible say about God? And in particular, what does it say about something called the aseity of God? And I'm going to try to bring together, not all of the data, because we don't have time to do that, but bring together perhaps the most relevant data, uh, organize it and present it to you and say, this is a truth about God that the Bible teaches. And it teaches it really from beginning to end in one way or another. And because the Bible teaches us this truth, it is important that we understand it. It has a bearing upon our lives. If we're going to live to the glory of God, we, we must grasp this truth and we must think about how it applies to our lives. Now, let me begin with the definition of a saity. And uh, I was uh, thrilled to, to discover that both Ron and Nathan, when they found out I was speaking on aseity, did a little research on their own. It's wonderful when the uh, people responsible for leading the service and, and, and uh, reading the scripture uh, take what the speaker says he's going to speak on. They look it up. And they say, what's, he, what's, uh, what's all of this about? And, and they did a very fine job at uh, discerning uh, the basic direction that I'm going in this afternoon uh, in a relatively short period of time. And so that gives me all sorts of hope that by the time I'm done today, uh, all of us can rejoice in this great truth. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. Kind of like the word deity or deity, as they say over in, in, in Great Britain, except you take the D off and you put uh, A-S in front of E-I-T-Y. Aseity. It is from a Latin word. It's a Latin kind of term that means assay from himself. The aseity of God speaks about God's self-sufficiency. It is a word that speaks about the fact that God is absolutely complete in himself and he needs nothing in the rest of creation in order to exist or for any other reason. Okay, the self-sufficiency of God. God needs nothing in the rest of creation in order to exist or for any other reason. Now, you, if, you're, if you're following me and thinking uh, with me this afternoon, you'll, you'll appreciate immediately that we have to be careful when we start talking like this because if we push this idea too far, we make the universe that God has made and we make ourselves as the pinnacle of God's creative work, absolutely 
irrelevant. Right? If God doesn't need anything for his existence or for any other reason, then what's the universe all about? And, 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 and what are we all about as creatures that God himself has made, specially made in his image and likeness? So we must, when we think about the aseity of God, define it in such a way as to honor what the Bible says about God himself and at the same time to preserve our place as creatures who have meaning and who have significance in the world that God has made. And so a definition that brings some of these together. This is Wayne Grudem's uh, definition. A, a definition that brings some of this information together would look something like this. God doesn't need the rest of creation to exist or for any other reason. Yet, we affirm that we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. It's like so many definitions in, in uh, biblical and systematic theology. It has to be balanced. There's a tension here. There's a this and a that to it. On the one hand, God doesn't need the rest of creation to exist or for any other reason. Yet, on the other hand, we affirm that the rest of creation can glorify God. And even more than that, if you like, can give God joy. Now, it's not enough for me just to stand up here and make these kinds of assertions. I need to, I need to now demonstrate from Scripture itself that, that this idea of God's aseity is actually taught in the Bible. Because if it's not taught there, we're not supposed to believe it. So we turn to the Scriptures and to evidence for divine aseity. And, and the first place we turn is to Psalm 50 that Nathan read for us earlier. Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12. And again, I'll remind you of the, of the relevant uh, words here. God is speaking, and what does God say? He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and everything in it. That's just God pulling rank. That's God saying to uh, arrogant human beings who constantly have a tendency to think that, that God is dependent upon them. This is God saying, no, I'm not dependent upon you. I don't need anything. You don't, you, you don't have something that I need in order to be complete or fulfilled within myself. Everything is mine and I can do what I want with it. And if I had any needs, which of course does, God doesn't have, I, I wouldn't tell you because you're not able to meet my needs anyway. Another passage where the aseity of God is taught is, is in the book of Job, chapter 41 and verse 11. In some ways, the whole book of Job teaches the aseity of God. If you know uh, anything about the book of Job, you know that it is really the record of a conflict between God and Satan, or a, uh, a discussion, uh, a challenge between God and Satan, uh, in which Job was unwittingly involved. I mean, there's no indication that Job ever is told uh, why all of those terrible things happened to him. He may have been told, he may not have been told. I, I know he knows now. 
but uh, there's nothing in the text. I mean, at no point does God explain to Job, listen, all of this came about because one day uh, Satan came to stand before me and I said to Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's upright before me. And of course, Satan says to God, well, of course he's upright. Look at the blessings that you've poured out upon that man. I mean, who wouldn't praise you and, and obey you and honor you when you bless him in that way? And God says, oh, is that so? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, you can take away those external blessings. You can test Job and try Job and, and see what is really in his heart. And uh, you know that that's exactly what Satan does. And Job loses you know, almost everything uh, overnight. He, he, he's, he's, uh, he loses everything external to him. And, and then when Satan comes and stands before God again, uh, and God points out the fact that Job has maintained his integrity, then Satan gains further permission to touch Job's body, to, to inflict pain upon Job. He's not allowed to kill Job, but he's allowed to make Job's life uh, you know, a misery. And even then, Job maintains his integrity. Even then, Job continues to trust in God. We should not suppose, though, that this was an easy time in Job's life. He was severely tried. In fact, Job, as the uh, book goes on and as he uh, interacts with a number of uh, comforters who come and try to instruct him and who basically struggle with the fact that he cannot be innocent and suffer the way he does, this is one of the things that goes through the book of Job. Uh, Job's comforters have a, a difficult time understanding how Job can be innocent and yet suffer. Innocent men, in their minds, don't suffer. If you're truly righteous, God will bless you. Kind of early version of the health and wealth gospel. Job, you must have done something terribly wrong for, for all of this tragedy to come into your life. You need to own up to it. You need to, be, you, know, you need to be honest before us and before God. Confess your sin, repent, and maybe God will forgive you. And Job says, I wish I had something to, to repent of. But although he's not proclaiming his sinlessness, there was nothing that he could think of that was in this kind of one-on-one -on -one relationship between I've done this and therefore I've known God's judgment. Job is rightly frustrated because he doesn't know about what's going on behind the scenes. He doesn't know that God and Satan have had this, have had a number of conversations. He doesn't know. He's, he's, he's caught up in the middle of these. And, and, as, and as time goes on, Job wants to talk to God. He wants, he has questions for God. He wants God to explain why he's put him through all of this misery. And you know, at the end of the book of Job, Job gets his chance. And he begins to speak to God, and he very quickly realizes that he is completely out of his league. In fact, Job begins to very quickly realize that the best thing for him to do is to put his hand over his mouth and to be quiet, because he's in no position to question God. In fact, God tells Job to brace himself like a man. God has some questions for Job. And really, all of God's questions uh, illustrate in one way or another his aseity. Basically, God just says to Job, what do you know about anything? Where were you when I, when I made the universe, when I did this, when I did that? Can you explain this? Can you explain that? Of course, the answer over and over again is no, I don't, I don't have a clue about the workings of the universe. I can't begin to understand you and your ways. And in the midst of that, God says in Job 41 verse 11, who has a claim against me that I should pay? Of course, the answer is nobody does. Everything under heaven belongs to me.
Not even Job. Not even Job who suffered the loss of all things. Job who's barely escaped with his life. Not even Job has a claim against God that God should pay. Why? Because everything under heaven, including Job, belongs to God. And God is free to do, do with everything, whatever he pleases. His ways are always righteous and just, even though it's sometimes difficult for us to appreciate it at the time. And then that brings me to the passage in Acts that I read for you, Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. And, and you'll notice that this is part of Paul's gospel presentation to pagans. Okay? Now, some people have suggested that when Paul spoke before the Areopagus in Acts 17, he made a mistake that he later regretted. I don't know if you've ever heard that theory. Uh, there uh, are some that uh, suggest that when Paul was brought by these Athenian philosophers and was uh, put there in, in, in this place to present his views, that he got carried away with the, with, with the whole situation. And, and he, he instead, of, instead of sticking to the simple gospel, he tried to be philosophical. He tried to sound wise. He tried to sound clever. And, uh, and, and he tried to sort of win these pagans in Athens uh, using his own educational background and his own kind of uh, worldly wisdom. And that uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 records uh, Paul uh, thinking about this occasion after the fact and, and basically saying to himself, I'm never ever going to do that again. Uh, I, I'm not going to come with the eloquence of a philosopher or, or a wise man or anything like that. I'm going to determine from this point on to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. And that's a real bad reconstruction of what's going on here in Acts 17. At this particular point in Paul's life, he wasn't a neophyte when it came to preaching the gospel. And I think we know enough about the Apostle Paul to know that he wouldn't have been impressed just because he was asked by a bunch of Athenian philosophers to come and stand before the Areopagus and to make a presentation. That wouldn't have wowed Paul. He wouldn't have been there, oh, wow, what an opportunity. I'm going, to, I'm going to be famous as a result of this, so I better not just talk about the simple gospel. I better try to sound profound. That's not what Paul's doing at all. Paul's presentation in Acts 17 is quite different than his presentation in a typical Jewish synagogue for the simple reason that when he was in a Jewish synagogue, he was speaking to people who knew the Old Testament scriptures. That was their Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. And they knew that those Hebrew scriptures spoke about the fact that God would one day send a Messiah into the world. And so when Paul stood before the Jews in their synagogue, his basic line of, 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 of preaching was that, listen, this Jesus who was prophesied, or this Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament, this uh, Messiah is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come. And, 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 and Paul would try to show that the scriptures anticipated Christ and that Christ, uh, Jesus Christ fulfilled those scriptures. But when Paul stands before the Athenians in Acts 17, he's dealing with a group of, of spiritual uh, illiterates. He's dealing with men who, although they were intelligent in and of themselves, Epicureans and Stoics and the like, they did not have a grasp of the Hebrew scriptures. In other words, they didn't have a context 
for the gospel, a context for Jesus. So Paul doesn't begin with Jesus because they were in no position to understand Jesus. There's all kinds of lessons for evangelizing in our world today. I mean, if you're speaking to people who have gone to church, been taken to church in the past, or have read the Bible, then you can get down to talking about who Jesus is. But if you're talking to so many people in our society today who don't know Jesus from, uh, from Moses or from David or from Jeremiah, uh, to start talking to them about Jesus is usually a huge mistake because they don't have biblical categories in which to make any sense of Jesus. So what do you have to do? Well, you have to start where Paul starts here in Acts 17. And you have to start where the Bible starts in the book of Genesis chapter 1 with the God who created all things. With the God who, who uh, didn't need anything. Uh, with the God who was self-sufficient in and of himself. But the God who for his own good pleasure and according to his will created for his honor and for his glory. And that's what Paul does. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. You see how different that is from God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? This message of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is appropriate in certain contexts. But if you go out to our society at large, particularly in a place like downtown Toronto, you start talking like that, you're talking nonsense. I've probably uh, said this before. At, at, at some point when I've been ministering here, the trouble is I've, you know, it, it's hit and miss here and there. And I, you can't always remember, did I say it here? Or I say it somewhere else, but uh, it, it bears repeating. I say to my students, you know, say we wanted to witness to Toronto. And uh, we've got a billboard outside TBS, and we wanted to rent that billboard, and we wanted to put up a simple message that everybody could see and understand. And uh, we had a big discussion about it in students' council. And we eventually decided that we could do no better than to put up uh, two simple words, Jesus saves. So we rent the billboard across the street on, on Jarvis Street, all the vehicles that travel up and down that, all the people that walk up and down every day. And we say, okay, we're going to put these two simple words on that billboard. I mean, who can misunderstand that? Who cannot grasp the message, Jesus saves? But, of course, it's not as simple as that. And I point out to the students that Jesus saves can mean different things depending on who's looking at those words. So if it's a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, he might, be, he might think about a goalie, right? Jesus saves. We need to get this Jesus on our team. We need someone who can keep the puck out of the net. If it's a, if it's a, a stockbroker or mutual fund salesman who's, who's uh, supposed to be on Bay Street, but somehow he's got his beamer on, on, uh, on Jarvis Street, he looks up and he sees Jesus saves. He goes, oh, I wonder what he's invested in. You know? I wonder what funds that he, uh, he, he recommends. Or perhaps it's a, it's a, you know, a student from Ryerson. They're uh, a tree-hugging student. You know, they're out to save the world. They're very, very green. And uh, they see Jesus saves, and they say, oh, that's great, great. Jesus is a friend of the environment. Uh, he recycles. Uh, he, he, he's concerned about, about preserving our natural resources. And you begin to see that those simple words, Jesus saves, need a context. Uh, to us, they mean Jesus is... The Savior of the world. That is, he died on the cross to save us from our sins. But all that presupposes some kind of understanding of what sin is and and why it was necessary for him to die and how his death on the cross has anything to do with sin and and a whole bunch of other questions. And if you're really going to have people understand what it means that Jesus saves, you've got to start where 
God starts in the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you've got you've to kind of put the basic pieces of the puzzle in place. And that's what Paul's doing here. God, I want you to know what kind of God we're talking about. And where does he begin when he talks about God? With the aseity of God. He says, I want you to understand something. That this God I'm talking about is different from any conception of God that you would otherwise have. He's not like the gods and goddesses that, that, that were worshipped in Athens. It was a place full of idols. They, they had a statue to every deity they could think of. And in case they missed any deities, they had a statue to an unknown god. And so Paul basically picks up on that. And he says, well, you've acknowledged the fact that there's a God that you don't know. And he says, you know, you're right. You don't know him. And he's the God that I'm going to tell you about. And I want you to understand that this God I'm going to tell you about is different than any of the other gods and goddesses that you think you know and worship. He's in a class by himself, and we see that uh, because he made the world and everything in it. And he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. You see, you're... Your, your idea of God is just way too small because he gives all men life and breath and everything else. Now, let me just unpack this idea of, of saity a little bit more uh, before, I, before I take it. And, and like, you know, they're talking about Hurricane Sandy coming up the coast of the eastern coast of the United States and then it's supposed to to, to make a sharp left turn at New, New Jersey and New York, right? And, and, and it's supposed to come in our direction uh, tomorrow and Tuesday. We'll see if that actually happens. But I know that, uh, you know, the mayor of New York has ordered the evacuation of, you know, 375,000 people or something earlier this morning. So obviously they're very concerned about it. I'm, go- I'm going to take the assiduity of God and I'm going to, I don't, I don't want to say I'm going to move it left. I'm going to maybe move it right. And it's never good to go left, you know, when you're, when you're talking about right and left. But anyway, I'm going to move it in a, in a certain direction in just a moment. But before I do that, just, just let me make sure you understand what I mean when I say that God is self-sufficient. Uh, I've already said that he doesn't depend upon anyone or anything for his existence. Which simply means he was never created. There was never a time when God did not exist. He always was. And all things that exist were made by him. Now that's a mind-boggling truth if you stop and think about it. God always was. Everything that we know in our experience had a beginning. Right? And, and we, you know, we, we, we go from one thing to another thing. We can go back in time and, and, and everything has a beginning. But the Bible teaches us everything has a beginning but God. That God is eternal. That God always was. He is uncreated. There was never a time when God was not. There was a time when the universe was not. There was a time when matter was not. We do not believe that, that God and matter are eternally coexistent. There was a time when, when all of these other things were not, but there was never a time when God was not. That's an element of his aseity, right? He is not dependent upon anyone or anything for his existence. Nobody made God. Exodus 3 verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. Or it could be translated, I will be who I will be. Same thing. That is what you're to say to the Israelites. They want to know, 
you know, who sent you? You tell them this, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That's who has sent me to you. Psalm 90 verse 2, written by Moses, interestingly enough. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. John 1, verses 3 and 4, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Revelation 4, 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is important truth in our day. We live in a day dominated by naturalism. You know, the, the belief that, that uh, the, the world, that matter, that stuff has always existed. And that given enough time, somehow the impersonal became personal. The scripture presents a completely different worldview. The scripture says that in eternity past... The only one that was there was God. And God existed in eternity. Before he made the universe, God existed. You say, how is that possible? And I don't know. Nobody knows. But this is what scripture teaches. He is not dependent upon anyone or anything for his existence. Pushing it a little further, the Bible also tells us that God didn't create because he was lonely or he needed companionship. If that were the case, and it's not, but if it were the case, it would make God's happiness and God's personal fulfillment dependent upon something outside of himself. See that? God would have to create in order to be happy, in order to be fulfilled. But the Bible teaches us that God was completely fulfilled and satisfied within himself in eternity past, and his decision to create had nothing to do with any lack in himself, any need that he felt, whether it was a need for love or a need for self-expression or a need uh, to communicate or to enjoy fellowship. This is where the doctrine of the Trinity is important. As Christians, we are monotheists, but do you know something? We're not monotheists like like Jews are monotheists or like Muslims are monotheists. Judaism, the God of Judaism and the God of Islam is a unipersonal God. Oh yes, he's one, but he's unipersonal. The Christian conception of God is that God is one and yet three. Three persons in one. Tri-personal, not unipersonal, tri-personal. And one reason why that is so very important is that it means in eternity past when there was nothing but God, there was a God who was in relationship with himself. There was not a God who was a solitary, alone individual. But there was a God who was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there was a love that existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there was communication that went on. And there was fellowship that was enjoyed. God's decision to create was not because he eventually got tired of talking to himself. Or because he was in some ways lacking anything. He was completely satisfied. That's a satiety. Complete, self-sufficient. 
Is there any evidence of this in Scripture? Yes, I think there is. Jesus, in a couple of places in John 17, a very profound chapter, where he's praying to the Father on the, on the, on the eve of, of really going, of going to the cross and then by means of the cross going into the Father's presence. John 17, 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Father and Son sharing glory before the world began. Again, verse 24, the same chapter. Father, Jesus says, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I'll push it one step further. The aseity of God means that he is not dependent on anyone or anything outside of himself for anything whatsoever. God has always been and God will always be exactly who and what he is. If he had never made a thing, he would still be love. He would still be just. He would still be eternal. He would still be omniscient. He would still be triune. He would still be everything else that he's revealed about himself. God isn't dependent upon us for praise. As if he's some kind of megalomaniac. He doesn't have an insatiable desire for worship because he has a poor self-image. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything outside of himself, including me and including you. But here's where, here's where I've got to now, well, change gears or I've got to move this whole idea in another direction. And I'm moving it in another direction, not because I don't like what I've just said, but I'm moving it in another direction because that's what the Bible does. Because in light of what I've just said, the question could be asked, well, if God doesn't need us, what good are we? And the answer that the Bible gives runs something like this. Although God doesn't need us because of any deficiency within himself, God has freely chosen, and by freely I mean he, he was not constrained by any forces outside of himself or any lack within himself. God has freely chosen to create the universe and to create us as human beings and to invest the universe with value and to particularly invest us with value, to invest us with real meaning and real significance simply because he decided to do so for his own honor and for his own glory, for the good pleasure of his will. And so we have a God who doesn't need to create, but a God who has freely chosen to create. Does the Bible speak about this? Yes, it does. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7 says, God created Israel for his glory. Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 12 says, In him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And then you remember Revelation chapter 4, 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, 
to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all your things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So what I'm suggesting to you is that the Bible presents us with a God who, who in the first instance doesn't need anything. The, the world, the universe that he has made and, and, and human beings that he has made are not an expression of a lack within God. They're an expression rather of God's freedom, of God's free decision to, to do what he has done for his honor and for his glory. He has determined to magnify himself in the creation of the universe and in our creation as human beings and in everything that he has ordained as part of human history. As a result of that, because we are an expression of God's free choice, his determination to glorify himself, we are able to bring real joy and delight to God. And there are two verses, ironically, they're both in the Old Testament. There's a third verse that I can bring in from the New Testament, and I will, I will but I, I just want to focus on these two from the Old Testament, that, that speak about this. Now, you, to, to appreciate these verses, you have to understand that they're spoken initially to Israel. But if my understanding of Israel is correct, you, you understand as you go through the Scriptures, where biblical theology helps, as you go through the Scriptures, you see that, that Israel... Uh, are the physical descendants of, of Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob. They, they are part of the, of, the, of the promised blessing through whom Messiah comes. But it's clear as you go through the Old Testament, as you come into the New Testament, that there's an Israel within Israel. That not all who are of Israel are Israel. That there's a physical Israel. There are, there are Jews who are Jews according to the flesh. That is, they can trace their physical lineage back to Abraham through a certain uh, line of, of sons. But there is, a, there is another Israel within this group. And, and, and they are people who share Abraham's faith. They are believers in God just like Abraham was. And as you go through the scriptures, you find that, that, the, that the first idea of Israel begins to, to, to fall away. And, and what emerges in the New Testament is, is, a, is a new redefined Israel, redefined around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is composed of believers who, like Father Abraham, look to all that God has done in Messiah. So you have to keep that in mind as you read these passages. The first one is Isaiah 62, verses 3 to 5. God says to... Israel in Isaiah 62, an Israel who has been redeemed by the servant of the Lord. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted and your name or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hebsabah and your land Beulah. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. Now notice this last line here. As a young man marries a maiden, so your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now, that verse just sparkles in light of the aseity of God. Because if we're talking about a God who was lonely, or who was you know, feeling unloved, or a God who, you know, who really did want someone to, to talk to and, and was tired of talking to himself, and so he created us in order to fulfill those needs, 
then, well, it's still great that that kind of God rejoices over us, but we're not talking about that kind of God. We're talking about a God who was complete within himself, a God who did, didn't have to do any of this in order to, uh, to satisfy any lack within himself, yet for his own reasons, for his own glory, for his own purposes, he did create. And now that he has created, he has so bound himself to that creation, and particularly to the redeemed of that creation, that he rejoices over them. He delights in them. He takes pleasure in them. They bring joy to his heart. Not from a position of weakness, from a position of strength. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. That's the point. And as if that verse weren't wonderful enough, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 it takes it even further. I love this verse. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I wouldn't even dare to suggest it if the Bible didn't say it. We, we've been singing here praises to God. You see what that verse is saying? He sings to us. Imagine that. He sings to us. Well, we're just creatures of dust and to boot. We're sinful creatures of dust. And here's a God, a great God, an awesome God, a God who needs nothing to be complete and fully satisfied, who has entered upon a course of action that has forever bound his happiness and his joy and the very honor of his name with our salvation so that he delights in us. He quiets us. That's the kind of image, you know, I became a, since I was here last, I've become a grandfather. And I got this little, cute little granddaughter. And, um, yeah, I like to hold my granddaughter. And so does my wife. She likes, we like to hold our granddaughter. You, you think of quieting you know, that little girl with your love, you're holding her. Now, 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 everything's fine. Quiet you with your love. Rejoice over you with singing. God does not need us, but he has chosen to make us and delight in us. He allows us to bring joy to his heart. And in one of the most profound verses in all the Bible, John 17, verse 23, He loves us as he loves his own son. How is that possible? He loves us as he loves his own son. The son who was there. The son who who was God and yet with God. The son who was there with the father in eternity past before anything was made. The son through whom God made the world. He loves us as he loves his son. And so we can say now, And if God has pledged to save us, he has committed to save us, he must save us or cease to be God. If you're here and you struggle with assurance, you need to just think about this for a little while. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God has chosen us in Christ, if God has, in effect, bound himself to our salvation, there's no way we can be lost. Uh, For us to be lost would, would, would be for God to cease to be God. Because the Almighty One, the self-sufficient One, has bound Himself to our salvation. And if you're ever trying to find esteem, self-esteem, here's the place to look. Our self-esteem is not based upon anything 
out there in the world, our self-esteem is ultimately based upon our relationship with God. We have significance. Why? Because God has given us significance. I'm significant. You're significant. Because God has made us in his image and his likeness. That's that's why we need to be concerned about missions and concerned about people who are lost and dying in our world. We need to go out into into the highways and byways and tell people, listen, you're not junk. You have significance. You're made by God in his image and likeness. Made to have a relationship with him. And if you'll come to him and he freely invites you, he will not cast you out. If you come and take refuge in his son, no matter what you've done, the blood of that son will cleanse you from all of your sins. And if you lay hold of that son, it is because God has laid hold of you. And God, having laid hold of you, will not let you go. And so come, literally hell or high water, God will keep you to the very end. So the aseity of God, although at first sounds kind of weird and very abstract, very systematic theology, like, it's a great truth, is it not? (laughs) That this God, the God who needed nothing, says, I am going to act so that in effect I need you. You see, from now on I need you. I didn't need you, I I was happy, but I have chosen to make you and I have chosen to love you. You will be mine. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Nothing will tear us apart. It is a truth that we will ponder for all eternity. That this God, that this God, this awesome God, should take me into his heart, take me into his family, and love me, whether I'm a man or a woman like his own dear son. Let's pray. Father, we do marvel at who you are. Our problem is that we, we don't take time to ponder what the scriptures say. We don't think deeply enough upon the implications of, of what is laid out for us. Here's a powerful truth. Here's a mighty truth that uh, you are self-sufficient, that you need nothing outside of yourself. And yet you have chosen for your own namesake, for your own glory's sake. You've chosen to create, to create a world like this one. You've chosen to allow the fall. You've chosen to send your son You've chosen to redeem your people. You've chosen not to, not to sanctify us and make us holy in a, in a flash of brilliant light, but through difficulties and struggles in this world to bring us safe to glory. We have not begun to understand the wisdom that is displayed in the way you have organized the world And the things that we often complain about, we really do not understand. But we do believe that there will come a day when we will stand in a new heavens, in a new earth. And with minds that have been freed from sin, with the redeemed, we will sing your praises. 
And we will praise you who sits upon the throne. And we will praise the lamb who was slain. For you created all things. By your will they were created. You have redeemed your people. You have redeemed them by your son's blood. And for the rest of eternity we will marvel that such a God as you would take to yourself creatures like us. We praise you. Help us to live for your honor and for your glory. May these ideas revolutionize not only our view of ourselves, but our understanding of our mission in the world. Privileged indeed that we should be called the children of God. In Jesus' name we pray.